Hello all and welcome to episode 23 of the podcast. This is and indeed I am the Dream Filter. Today we'll end our focus on the lead up to the March 20, 2003 US-led invasion of Iraq and April 9 overthrow of Saddam Hussein, which was helped by media propaganda. A two-faced anti-war movement that was even composed of mainstream media elements did arise. These phony actors were by and large elsewhere during Clinton's war against Yugoslavia in the late 1990s. If you haven't caught up on the last episode, the one before it or before that, please... Now, time for the fourth part of our focus on the Iraq War, resuming mid-February 2002. On February 14, Hans Blix and Mohammed al-Baradai made another address before the UN Security Council, two and a half weeks after their last. A transcript of the Blix section is at www.theguardian.com slash world slash 2003 slash feb slash 14 slash iraq dot united nations one. Blix spoke of the increasing scope of the inspections. He was less than sure that Iraq had been fully cooperative but reiterated that no available evidence had indicated that Iraq possessed or was trying to possess any weapons of mass destruction. Here's a little section for you, from a third in. Dot, dot, dot. How much, if any, is left of Iraq's weapons of mass destruction and related proscribed items and programs? So far, UNMOVIC has not found any such weapons, only a small number of empty chemical munitions, which should have been declared and destroyed. Dot, dot, dot. We are fully aware that many governmental intelligence organizations are convinced and assert that prescribed weapons Items and programs continue to exist. Dot, dot, dot. Inspectors, for their part, must base their reports only on evidence, which they can, themselves, examine and present publicly. Without evidence, confidence cannot arise. Dot, dot, dot. Blix was not quite as positive as Mohammed al-Baradai. Nor was he in bed with the US-led pro-war faction. His testimony largely contradicted the propaganda of the government media complex. The talk by Blix and al-Baradai hardened animosity between the US and UK on the one hand, and Russia, China and France. For a transcript of the response from French Foreign Minister Dominique de Villapon, try 
www.nytimes.com slash 2003 slash 02 international slash Middle East slash statement minus by minus France minus 2 minus security minus council dot HTML. Here is an assembled cross-section. Mr. President, Mr. Secretary-General, Distinguished Ministers, Distinguished Ambassadors, I would like to thank Mr. Blix and Mr. Albaradai for the information they have given us on the continuing inspections in Iraq. I would like to reiterate to them France's confidence and complete support in their work. Dot, dot, dot. First, the option of inspections has not been taken to the end. It can provide an effective response to the imperative of disarming Iraq. Secondly, the use of force would be so fraught with risk for people, for the region and for international stability, that it should only be envisioned as a last resort. So what have we just learned from the reports by Mr. Blix and Mr. Albaradai? We have just learned that the inspections are purchasing results. Dot, dot, dot. France, for its part, would propose another meeting on 14 March at the ministerial level to assess the situation. We would then be able to judge the progress made and what remains to be done. Dot, dot, dot. By mid-February, much of the invasion force was in place. In a long-winded, smarmy bluster before the Australian Parliament on February 4, a day before the infamous Colin Powell address before the UN General Assembly, Prime Minister John Howard repeated much of the well-worn U.S., U.K., pro-war, script. In the latter half, he spoke of why Australian military elements were being pre-positioned in the Middle East, ready to tack on to the U.S.-dominated invasion force. But before he got on to that, Howard unleashed this, right near the start of his address. Dot, dot, dot. Although there is considerable debate about the best course of action to resolve this crisis, I want, for a moment, to focus on the one thing that unites us all, and that is a common abhorrence of war. Dot, dot, dot. I could refer you to a transcript, but we both know that you wouldn't read it. Throughout early February, there had been constant 
interconnected diplomacy and a rift within NATO that saw Germany, France and Belgium initially block a proposal that would see the terror group assume control of Turkey's defense in the hypothetical event of Iraqi retaliatory action on Turkey. Should it first involve itself in the attack as a base for coalition forces? The deadlock was broken on February 16. Germany, France and Belgium dropping their resistance. This was two days after the just-mentioned address by Blix and El Baradai and a day after the massive global anti-war protests mentioned in the last episode. Oh, by the way, Belgium. Besides a language or a city, can you tell me a single thing about this country? Does it even exist? The rest of the month was made up of the usual, the culmination of much of the military build-up, international diplomacy, much of it involving the UN, a hardening tone between the pro-war and anti-war, continuing anti-war protests, US-led airstrikes over at least one of the no-fly zones. For a summary, go to www.wsws.org, where there's an article titled, Bush Administration Accelerates U.S. Military Build-Up Against Iraq, by Henry Michaels, 20 February 2003. I'll now read you an assembled section. Having declared that he is undeterred by the size of the global protests against his planned assault on Iraq, US President George W. Bush is proceeding with frenzied military preparations. Dot, dot, dot. Behind the diplomatic maneuvers and bullying at the UN, the massive build-up indicates that the White House's timing is driven primarily by military considerations. From all indications, the invasion strike force will be ready within two weeks. The same deadline that the White House has given, the UN Security Council for the passage of a resolution legitimizing the assault. According to Pentagon officials, an accelerating deployment has put some 150,000 American forces in the Persian Gulf region, with the number expected to exceed 200,000 by early March. Dot, dot, dot. Some 31,000 British military personnel, one quarter of the country's entire armed forces, have also begun to pour into Kuwait. Together with about 2,000 Australians, they are the only other troops to join the U.S. invasion force. Dot, dot, dot. In reality, for all the diplomatic role-playing at the U.N., the war has been underway for months. U.S. warplanes are bombing Iraqi installations almost every day and Special Forces Commandos and CIA officers are operating inside Iraq. Administration officials have confirmed that in the past several days additional U.S. troops have crossed the border into northern Iraq. 
They joined a group already there that was acknowledged several weeks ago by General Richard Myers, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. U.S. forces have set up bases in Kurdish-controlled northern Iraq in order to secure control over the region's crucial oil fields as soon as the main assault is launched. Proven oil reserves in the area total more than 10 billion barrels, a rich prize that Washington is determined to seize. These operations are a direct violation of the UN resolution. Passed last November, which prohibits infringements on Iraq's national sovereignty. This is the same resolution 1441 the U.S. is invoking to justify its war drive. Bush Tuesday revealed his determination to overcome one final obstacle: the Turkish government's refusal to give the final go-ahead for Turkish bases to be used for a ground assault on Iraq from the north. Turkey's Prime Minister Abdullah Gül Monde delayed a parliamentary vote on the use of the bases, declaring that no approval would be granted without a second UN resolution. Facing overwhelming popular opposition to its decision to allow the country to become a staging ground for the war, the Turkish government is holding out for a larger aid package than the six billion dollars in grants and fifteen to twenty billion dollars in loan guarantees offered by Bush. The postponement came after the weekend's worldwide anti-war protests. Followed by demonstrations at the U.S. embassy in Ankara and outside the headquarters of Gul's Justice and Development Party. Dot dot dot. These concerns are among the reasons that the invasion will begin with a brutal show of force. Forty-eight hours of massive air bombardment, during which. 3,000 precision bombs and missiles will be unleashed by air force and navy jets, each carrying 16 one-ton satellite-guided bombs, as well as B-1 stealth bombers. The Bush administration is quite prepared to kill tens of thousands of Iraqi civilians, as well as poorly armed soldiers, in the hope of achieving a rapid victory. The stated aim of this shock and awe strategy is to terrorize the Iraqi people with the same horror as the atom bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. End of article. The concerns mentioned in the last part were of a logistical nature. Check the article for info. Before we cross into March, I ask you to recall the complicit, incredibly broad role of corporate media in spreading the propaganda of the military-industrial complex. For a breakdown of U.S. media, look no further than FAIR, which does good work. In episode 21, I suggested you look at its March 19, 2007 article. Iraq and the media: a critical timeline. At www.fair.org/take-action/media-2007.
advisories slash Iraq minus and minus the minus media slash. It includes a massive catalog of analyzed, proven exhibits of corporate media propaganda from September 2002 until May 2003. Let me read you a snippet for context. February 25, 2003. MSNBC cancels Donahue its top-rated show and a rare oasis of war skepticism in the mainstream media. An internal NBC report surfaces, brackets, all your TV, that describes him as a difficult public face for NBC in a time of war. The report worries that his show could become a home for the liberal anti-war agenda at the same time that our competitors are waving the flag at every opportunity. Dot, dot, dot. The term liberal anti-war agenda is apt. For most of the anti-war crowd, in this case, the stance was largely based on political bias as most were silent when Clinton destroyed Yugoslavia, and would go silent again when Obama destroyed Libya in 2011. That aside, UK media was every bit as bad as US media. But an occasional source or reporter did good work against the flow, even in the US or UK. One example was Donahue, but you can uncover more in the FAIR article. In the UK, the Daily Mirror gave solid coverage to the huge anti-war demonstrations of mid-February, which were largely understated across most media, especially in the US. An always reliable source is Robert Fisk of The Independent. For a good article, February 15, 2003, titled, Robert Fisk, The Case Against War, A Conflict Driven by the Self-Interest of America. Try www.theindependent.co.uk. John Pilger of Australia is another one with credibility. On March 1, Turkish Parliament rejected a proposal for US forces to use Turkey as a base to attack Iraq. Nationwide anti-war sentiment a more pressing consideration than the bribe aid package offered by the US. Also, Iraq used heavy machinery to crush four Al-Samud II missiles in line with a UN deadline to begin a program to destroy any WMDs or long-range missiles it may have had. The US and UK quickly slammed it as a meaningless token act, while Russia and Egypt, on behalf of other Arab League nations, spoke of it as a positive development. For more info, Hold your nose and go to www.edition.cnn.com slash 2003 slash capital W capital O capital R capital L capital D slash M-E-A-S-T slash 03 slash 01 slash S-P-R-J dot I-R-Q dot missiles slash index 
www.sbs.com.hdml For the Saturday, March 1, 2003 article, Iraq begins destroying banned missiles. Bush spokesman, move is part of their games of deception. Over the next week or so, the pro-war and anti-war world was further crystallized as the final stretch was entered. As a follow-up to the Egyptian statement with Russia, the Arab League, which had held a March 1 summit on Iraq in the Egyptian resort of Sharm el-Sheikh, made a joint declaration against war with Iraq. Again, though it pains me to do so, I will refer to an article from CNN. I shall read a section which, in hindsight, and with reference to the 2007 interview with General Wesley Clark, mentioned in episode 20, will give you critical context. The second half of the article is under the subtitle, Gaddafi Blames Crisis on Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, U.S. Here it is. The summit nearly broke into chaos when Libyan President Muammar Gaddafi blamed the Middle East's problems on the presence of U.S. troops in the region. Then Gaddafi blamed their presence on Saudi Arabia, Kuwait and others for involving the United States in the Gulf War 12 years ago. Gaddafi's remarks prompted Saudi Crown Prince Abdullah and the Iraqi and Syrian delegations to walk out, while Libya's foreign minister ran after them to explain Gaddafi had meant no harm. The Egyptian broadcast network televising the proceedings briefly pulled the plug. The danger with Iraq, with the present regime, is of a threat in Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, Gaddafi said. And America is responsible to defend, as the region is very important to oil and resources. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is not an agent of imperialism, the Prince Abdullah retorted, wagging a finger at Gaddafi. Don't try to impose your opinion in this conflict if you're not aware of facts. Gaddafi was not the only one to denounce the United States. Syrian President Bashar Assad delivered a particularly strong speech, saying the situation in Iraq was about colonialism, and warned that the rest of the Arab world was next in line. Dot, dot, dot. The article, March 2, 2003, is titled, Arab Leaders Declare Opposition to War in Iraq. The initial subtitle is, Arab League calls on Saddam to cooperate with inspections. Christiane Amanpour, listed as a contributor, has never seen a war she didn't love. Moreover, while she used her CNN chief international correspondent platform to shill for NATO and Bill Clinton in their 1999 war against Yugoslavia, just who was her husband? It was James Rubin, who served in the Clinton regime as Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs from 1997 to 2000, and was known to be a close associate of Madeleine Albright. The good old government media complex. Oh yeah!
If you're not yet familiar with the Wesley Clark interview mentioned in episode 20, listen to it. A quick engine search will take you to a short video clip from the interview. If you try General Wesley Clark, wars were planned, seven countries in five years. Or something like that, you'll find it at YouTube or wherever else. Now, back to the topic at hand. In early March, the US and UK stepped up strikes over the no-fly zones to soften up Iraq's defenses, with reports that six civilians were killed and scores injured in a single March 3 attack in the city of Basra. On the 5th, Russia, China and France released a joint statement which expressed full support for the work of Mr. Blix and El Baradai, and optimism that Iraq was cooperating amid its ongoing, systematic destruction of the El Samud II missiles. The trio made it clear they would veto any attempt by the US and UK to gain UN authorization for war. For a transcript, go to www.theguardian.com slash world slash 2003 slash mar slash 06 slash France dot Germany. Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia, a key client of the military-industrial complex, opened a Dubai-based Arab-language TV news channel named El Arabia. Intended to rival the popular Qatar-based and owned Al Jazeera network, a longtime critic of the Saudi royal family, its launch on the eve of the Iraq war was likely no accident. Al Jazeera had gained global prominence during the US-led invasion and occupation of Afghanistan. In fact, it had opened a bureau in Kabul before the war and was the only international news outlet present in the country during the early stages. This bureau would be destroyed in a US airstrike in the first half of November 2001. For an article on this, November 13, 2001, titled, Al Jazeera Kabul Officers Hit in US Raid, Go to www.news.bbc.co.uk slash 2 slash hi slash south underscore asia slash 165388.stm and read how Al Jazeera had been viewed with great antagonism by the military-industrial complex. Al Jazeera had also operated a bureau in Baghdad since 1998. If its trailblazing, unrestrained coverage of the ongoing war in Afghanistan was anything to go by, it would continue to be a thorn in the side of the West, not only in Afghanistan, but Iraq. This would be borne out on April 8, 2003, the second week of the US-led invasion when a U.S. missile struck the Baghdad Bureau, killing Al Jazeera reporter Tarek Ayyub. Later, during the same day, an American Abrams tank fired on a Baghdad hotel housing hundreds of foreign media personnel, killing two cameramen. I may touch 
on this day in the next episode. For some retrospective context on the attitude of the US, UK, et al. toward Al Jazeera, try a November 27, 2005 article from The Guardian with a byline comprised of five people titled The Leak That Revealed Bush's Deep Obsession with Al Jazeera. The US president planned to bomb the Qatar-based channel. That was the remarkable claim made in a top-secret memo. Why is the world's most powerful man so worried about a TV station? Here's a section from the first half. Dot, dot, dot. Salah Hassan, an Al Jazeera cameraman, was arrested by US forces in November 2003 while filming the aftermath of an attack on a US convoy near the city of Bakuba. Following his arrest, he was surprised to discover he had been trailed by US troops for weeks and has been secretly photographed at the scene of other attacks. When he was interrogated, he was accused of having prior knowledge of attacks on coalition forces. At the heart of the accusation is the fundamental tension between journalists, largely Arab reporters catering for an Arab audience, who say they are anxious to cover the story from both sides, and a United States that regards reporting on some aspects of the insurgency as tantamount to collaboration with terrorism none of which would matter much were into, brackets, sick, not for the ferocious tenacity and professionalism of Al Jazeera, factors which have made the station an international phenomenon. Most gallingly for the US, its reporters have told a story that Washington either disagrees with or would rather remain untold that the kind of war America is prosecuting in Iraq is messy and heavy-handed, that civilians are too often the victims, and that the insurgents are not shadowy sinister figures, but ordinary men with more support than politicians would like to acknowledge. As a result, Al Jazeera has seen itself under almost constant attack by a White House whose instinct has been to control the media since the war in Afghanistan. The US military has harassed its reporters. Its officers in Baghdad and Kabul have both been bombed by the US and reporters have been detained, threatened and abused. The reason, perhaps, is not so difficult to fathom. In the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, the station, which now enjoys a viewership of some 50 million, began broadcasting a series of messages from Osama bin Laden. It was a remarkable scoop, but one for which the station would pay heavy consequences, convincing the US that Al Jazeera was, at the very least, infiltrated by Al-Qaeda. Was Bin Laden using the broadcasts to send secret messages to his followers? Dot, dot, dot. Al Arabia, meanwhile, reportedly spoke of the invasion as a liberation in some of its TV broadcasts from the time. I'm not able to directly verify this, and I don't speak Arabic. However, in a March 20, 
2018 article from its English language site titled "Photos: 15 Years of War in Iraq." The second part of its introductory caption read, "Here is a glimpse at the early stages of the war dubbed Operation Iraqi Freedom, when U.S. President Bush's administration stated interest in liberating Iraq." This doesn't have to mean that a hidden U.S. hand was evident in the foundation of Al Arabia, or that it's without any merit. What's clear, however, is that Al Jazeera was not always in lock with the broader globalist agenda, which resulted in the creation of Al Arabia. For the record, Al Arabia has historically lagged way behind in terms of popularity on the Arab street. And has maintained a well entrenched reputation as a poor man's version of Al Jazeera. The Western media, of course, remains relentless with its pro-war propaganda campaign in the lead-up to the Iraq War, often to the point of embarrassing, open fawning. Take this from Mary Ann Seekhart of the Times in London from the start of her March 5, 2003 article, titled. Love and the legacy of war. Even Blair's opponents concede that he is doing the unpopular thing because he thinks it is right. We all thrive on praise, but some of us care more than others where it comes from. Personally, I'm not fussy. I'll take it from anywhere. It's a bit different though when you belong to a political tribe. And Tony Blair must be wincing a little at the provenance of the acclaim that is currently coming his way. Take my esteemed colleague Michael Gove, not normally known as a New Labour groupie. He wrote a column recently that was headlined, "I can't fight my feelings anymore. I love Tony." This was, he claimed, a Tristan and Isolde moment. The Prime Minister was proving. Outstanding. If that were not enough, William Hague heaped praise on his former opponent after Blair's Iraq statement last week. Dot dot dot. Early on March seventh, Blicks and Elberadai made another joint address before the UN Security Council as a follow-up to a report submitted earlier in the month. The transcript from each man is easy to find online. There was nothing new in the latest info or the predictable responses from the various parties, though Blix was now very positive on the level of general Iraqi cooperation. For a summary of the presentation and fallout, go to www.theguardian.com/world/2003/mar/07/politics.iraq. It's an article by Sarah Left titled "Blix Wants Months," and Straw offers ten days, which really says it all. It's from the same day the address was made before the Security Council. Is a sample. Despite a report from the chief UN weapons inspector describing Iraqi cooperation as active or even proactive, America and Britain today pushed for a resolution giving Iraq a maximum of 10 days 
to comply fully with UN demands to disarm. Speaking after Hans Blix's report to the UN Security Council, in which he called for more time for inspections, the Foreign Secretary, Jack Straw, told the Council that Saddam Hussein should be set a March 17 deadline to comply with UN demands on disarmament or face the prospect of military action. Mr. Straw was tabling an amendment to the draft resolution proposed jointly with the US and Spain, which, if adopted, would give Iraq a further period to comply with the earlier resolution, 1441. The amendment, which slightly waters down the tough draft resolution that has created a major divide within the UN, proposes that unless the Security Council decides by March 17 that Iraq has taken its final opportunity to disarm, serious consequences will follow. Dot, dot, dot. But even before Mr. Straw spoke, the idea of a deadline was rejected by the French Foreign Minister Dominique de Villepon, who told the Security Council, we cannot accept an ultimatum as long as inspectors are reporting cooperation. He said a deadline would be a pretext for war. America and Britain's tough stance comes despite Mr. Blix's report outlining improved cooperation from Iraq. 34 of Iraq's illegal Samud-2 missiles had been destroyed, Mr. Blix said despite Baghdad's insistence that the weapons did not violate the UN-mandated 150-kilometer limit. Dot, dot, dot. Week 2 of March featured increasingly blunt global and political discourse. Secretary of State for International Development, Claire Short, a British MP, resigned from the post on March 12 after referring to Blair as reckless in a BBC Radio 4 interview, though she would stay in his cabinet. Short had supported the 1999 war on Yugoslavia. Leader of the House of Commons, former Foreign Secretary Robin Cook, would go a step further with a total resignation from the government on March 17. They would not be alone. This reflected a growing division within Britain, also reflected in Australia, if not in the US. Mr. Cook, while Foreign Secretary, has been an architect of British involvement in the war on Yugoslavia. He died in 2005, officially of a heart attack, while on holiday in Scotland. Some see his death as suspicious and wonder if he was assassinated for somehow crossing the British Deep State establishment after his resignation. Without having researched it, I reserve judgment until there's evidence to question the official story. Is the Western government media complex willing and able to assassinate important people and put out a broad, fake story to cover its tracks? Absolutely. Exhibit 1. JFK. But is this what also happened in the case of Mr. Cook? No idea. Not necessarily. Remember, 
As critical as it is to reject mainstream media for the rancid garbage it is, you must also be careful not to blindly accept anything put out by alternative, independent sources. Anyway, back on topic. There would also be the odd low-level, last-minute pre-war resignation in the US government, and Australian, but nothing worth talking about. On May 10th, a day on which more coalition aerial attacks and propaganda leaflet drops were undertaken over the no-fly zones, it finally became clear that war on Iraq would be waged in unilateral fashion. I won't sum it up by myself, but will refer to a New York Times article from the period written by Anthony De Palma titled Threats and Responses. An Overview, March 10, 2003. Support at home but not in France. Battle plans and basketball. President Bush and his plans for war with Iraq took two steps forward at home and one step backward at the United Nations and abroad. A new poll indicated that the administration has been successful in winning domestic support for war, but the president suffered setbacks in his effort to resolve a diplomatic standoff with important allies opposed to a war. A certain veto. The sharpest blow came after President Jacques Chirac of France went on television yesterday to say France would do everything in its power to stop the United Nations from endorsing an American war plan. Russia said it, too, would veto a resolution, and Mr. Chirac said he believed that China would do the same. Mr. Bush has threatened to disarm Iraq by force, with or without United Nations approval. But he worked the phones all day, lobbying furiously to gain enough votes in the Security Council to achieve at least a sense of moral authority for the United States' actions. The United States and Britain delayed a vote on their resolution to give Iraq until March 17 to disarm. While administration officials left open the possibility of compromise, they disparaged the Security Council for its unwillingness to act in previous crises in Kosovo and Rwanda. They also issued a vague threat to create an alternative to it. In The Hague, Secretary General Kofi Annan said any military action taken without Security Council backing would violate the United Nations Charter. Dot, dot, dot. More bombs fell over the no-fly zones throughout mid-March as the US and UK, mindful of their failure to gain the acquiescence of the international community for their criminal plans, made it clear they would carry them out alone. On March 13, John Howard made a long-winded, par-for-the-course pitch to the Canberra-based National Press Club to justify Australian support for these plans. On the 14th, French President Jacques Chirac spoke with Blair on the phone, confirming that France would not allow the passage of any resolution that authorised war. This reality would be front and centre at a March 16 summit on the Portuguese-administered 
Azores, attended by Bush, Blair, pro-war Spanish Prime Minister Jose Maria Aznar, and his equally pro-war Portuguese counterpart Jose Manuel Jurio Barroso, who, by the way, would go on to become President of the European Commission from 2004 to 2014. Globalism. Hey. If you wish to read a summary on the summit in the Azores, try an LA Times article by Maura Reynolds, March 17, 2003, titled, Azores Summit Ends in Ultimatum to UN. The subtitle is, Showdown with Iraq. Bush and the leaders of Britain and Spain say the Security Council has one day to go along with the use of force, or they'll wage war on Iraq alone. I'm not actually going to read from it, as the title says it all. But feel free to do so, if you wish to. Not that you need my approval to do so. The US, UK and Spain would promptly move to abandon any final attempt at getting international authorization. The US, UK, Australia, et al. advised all their non-essential staff and personnel in Iraq and various Middle Eastern countries to leave forthwith. The UN followed suit. On March 18, British Parliament authorized full participation in the invasion. On the same day, John Howard announced in a press statement that his cabinet had committed Australian troops to the war. A resolution went before Parliament later in the day. The move would highlight divisions but ultimately only provide a rubber stamp. As for Poland and its participation, look into it if you see the need. As an interesting footnote, from the same day, Germany, a key anti-war nation on the face of it, pledged it would allow US and UK overflights and use of bases on German soil in the name of the war effort, which it ostensibly opposed. Turkey ultimately did likewise regarding overflights on March 20. This is another interesting little insight into the nature of globalism. Is it not? Friends, we are about ready to get into the war itself. But first, let me read you a little bit from an article in The Guardian, 18th March 2003 by Julian Borger, titled, Bush gives Saddam and his sons 48 hours to leave Iraq. President George Bush last night gave Saddam Hussein and his sons 48 hours to give up power and go into exile or face invasion by more than a quarter of a million US and British troops massed on Iraq's borders. In a televised address to the nation, Mr. Bush urged Iraqi soldiers not to fight for a dying regime and said they would be given instructions on what to do to avoid being attacked and destroyed. The Iraqi regime quickly rejected the ultimatum, a response the US administration said it had expected. 
In effect, the president's 15-minute televised address to the nation from the White House was a declaration of war, which would come any time after tomorrow night. Saddam Hussein and his sons must leave Iraq within 48 hours. Their refusal to do so will result in military conflict commenced at a time of our choosing, the president said. He warned foreigners, including journalists and weapons inspectors, to leave immediately. Dot, dot, dot. The president expressed regret that the United Nations Security Council had chosen not to back military action against Iraq, hours after the US, Britain and Spain decided to withdraw a resolution threatening military force in the face of staunch opposition from France and Russia, and deep reluctance among other Security Council nations. The president justified the impending invasion on grounds of preemptive self-defense, arguing that Baghdad could arm terrorists with weapons of mass destruction. The United Nations Security Council has not lived up to its responsibilities, so we will rise to ours, he said. As the Security Council broke up amid acrimony earlier yesterday, the UN Secretary General, Kofi Annan questions the legitimacy of such an attack. Dot, dot, dot. As the final countdown to war began, UN monitors on the Kuwait-Iraq border left their observation posts between Iraq's 350,000 strong army and a gathering force of 225,000 American and 45,000 British troops. Supported by six aircraft carriers and more than 600 combat aircraft. On March 19th or 20th, depending on your time zone, Bush made a four-minute live televised address to the people of his glorious Reich, announcing that war against Iraq had commenced. You can access a transcript of this duplicitous, pompous homily at www.georgewbush-whitehouse.archives.gov slash news slash releases slash 2003 slash 03 slash 20030319 minus 17.html. But I wish to just read you the first sentence from the President. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people and to defend the world from grave danger. Dot, dot, dot. While Bush had again cited WMDs and a desire to liberate the Iraqi people, no specific utterance was made of the alleged links between Hussein and al-Qaeda, which, of course, has also been frequently used as justification for war against Iraq in the build-up. However, in his March 18 speech before the British Parliament, immediately prior to its vote to authorize UK military action, Tony Blair explicitly made this connection in lengthy fashion in the latter half of his address, accessible without any hint of analytical criticism at 
www.theguardian.com slash politics slash 2003 slash mar slash 18 slash foreign policy dot iraq one dot 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 millions of lethal doses are contained in one liter of anthrax 10,000 liters are unaccounted for he said at one point on the spectra of weapons of mass destruction he continued 11 September has changed the psychology of America it should have changed the psychology of the world of course Iraq is not the only part of this threat but it is the test of whether we treat the threat seriously dot 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 WMDs a stated wish to liberate the Iraqi people and an imaginary connection between Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. History has shown this justification, for lack of a better word, to be a contrived, colossal fallacy. But let's consider the psychology of these three unconnected excuses. You're throwing a party Friday night. You invite someone. They say no but give you a single, specific excuse. My grandma broke her hip. I was going to visit her this Friday evening. Presuming it's not a lie, the excuse is good. You ask another person who says, Nah, I'm busy. The excuse is vague and may well be a polite cover for simply not wanting to go to the party. Suspicious but hard to argue with. You ask another, they say, no, I can't make it. I have to take my car to the workshop that afternoon. I also have to study for a test, and I'm looking after my uncle's dog. Do you get what I mean here, people? Maybe not, but from my experience in life, a single excuse to justify a course of action has far more legitimacy than several unconnected excuses. But I do digress. For more context on just how thoroughly mainstream media was in sync with the military-industrial complex as the invasion unfolded, I will read you a short section from the FAIR article of August 2005 by Nicholas Solomon, titled The Military-Industrial Media Complex Why War is Covered from the Warrior's Perspective which has been referenced earlier in this podcast series. Here's the section. Under the subtitle, we got a big thumbs up. Mostly, the American television coverage of the Iraq invasion in spring 2003 was akin to scripted reality TV, starting with careful screening of participants. CNN was so worried about staying within proper bounds that it cleared on-air talent with the Defense Department. As CNN executive Ethan Jordan later acknowledged, brackets, CNN, April 20, 2003. I went to the Pentagon myself several times before the war started and met with important people there and said, for instance, at CNN, here are the generals we're thinking of retaining to advise us on the air and off about the war. 
and we got a big thumbs up on all of them. That was important. During the war that followed, the embedding of about 700 reporters in spring 2003 was hailed as a breakthrough. Those war correspondents stayed close to the troops invading Iraq, and news reports conveyed some vivid frontline visuals along with compelling personal immediacy. But with the context usually confined to the warrior's frame of reference, a kind of reciprocal bonding quickly set in. Dot, dot, dot. The embedding of reporters was the reincarnation of the Gulf War pool system, which you'd be familiar with from the earlier episodes on the Gulf War. It was introduced by the Pentagon before the start of the Iraq War to build camaraderie between reporters and host military units, and exercise tight control over the flow of info. Some 80% of embedded news media personnel during the invasion were from the US or UK. For a retrospective piece on this from the US perspective, try Postmortem. Iraq War media coverage dazzled, but it also obscured. 18 March 2004, Jeffrey Kahn, UC Berkeley News. In it is a question to former head of media relations for the US Marine Corps, Lieutenant Colonel Rick Long. The question was thus. Why did the military decide to embed journalists with the troops? The answer was thus. Frankly, our job is to win the war. Part of that is information warfare. So, we are going to attempt to dominate the information environment. For a story from the British perspective, go to an article from The Guardian, November 6, 2003, titled, Embedded Reporters Sanitized War, by Matt Wells. Here's a section. Television reports produced by embedded correspondents in the Iraq conflict gave a sanitized picture of war, according to an academic study published by the BBC Today. Dot, dot, dot. Researchers found that although reporters who accompanied the British and US military were able to be objective, they avoided images that would be too graphic or violent for British television. Some of the coverage resembled a war film. Dot, dot, dot. The BBC commissioned research will be discussed at News Exchange Conference in Budapest today. It showed that the corporation, like most other British broadcasters, tended towards pro-war assumptions. The least pro-war broadcaster was Channel 4. The study is the most comprehensive yet covering 1,500 individual reports. Dot, dot, dot. Although British broadcasters were not guilty of the overt pro-war bias of their US counterparts, they tended to assume the truth of what they had been told. In 9 out of 10 references to weapons of mass destruction during the war, there was an assumption that Iraq possessed them. Broadcasters were twice as likely to show Iraqi enthusiasm for the coalition forces as suspicion or hostility. 
The invasion officially commenced on March 20th, along with an ongoing wave of airstrikes which has begun the day before. One of the first attacks was done with stealth bombers and Tomahawk missiles launched from across the region, targeting the Dora Farm complex, where it was thought Hussein may have sought refuge. The assassination attempt failed, as the intel that suggested he was there was evidently faulty. Pseudo-intellectual globalist paper, the Sydney Morning Herald, put out an article on March 22, titled, Decapitation Attempt Was Worth a Try, George. Largely in support of the action, mentioning the propaganda term, shock and awe, words rather synonymous with the invasion of Iraq, twice, while admitting that at least one civilian was killed and over a dozen others, including nine women and a child, were maimed by a bomb that fell astray during the strike. Among the first victims of a war that would ultimately go on to kill hundreds of thousands of civilians and up to a million people in total. Within a day of the so-called decapitation attempt, the operation broadened. A series of air and ground attacks were launched in the south by US, British and Australian ground units, elements of which had been there since before the official start of hostilities. Dozens of Iraqi outposts were leveled within hours and sand barriers were breached along the frontier with Kuwait, Jordan and Saudi Arabia. Iraq answered with futile missile attacks against U.S. positions in the Kuwaiti desert. For a propaganda-laden summary of the initial day or so, with focus on the first coalition deaths, but in spite of the mammoth attack that Iraq was under, no mention of its casualties outside of the relatively small count from the Dora Farm airstrikes, try 16 killed in U.S. helicopter crash. March 20, 2003, by Joel Roberts. CBS News, complete with its globalist one-eye logo. Here's a section. Coalition forces suffered their first casualties when a marine helicopter crashed in Kuwait, killing all 12 Britons and four Americans on board. Military officials said the crash of the CH-46 Sea Knight occurred Friday morning in Kuwait, about nine miles from the border with Iraq. Dot, dot, dot. Meanwhile, the war to disarm Saddam Hussein and liberate Iraq gained momentum. Thursday, as U.S. forces fired missiles into Baghdad for a second straight night and ground troops crossed into Iraq from Kuwait. Loud explosions were heard Thursday night in Basra, Iraq's second largest city, reports CBS News correspondent Scott Pelley, who entered southern Iraq with the early U.S. ground forces. But the massive shock and awe phase of the American-led invasion that's been expected still has not begun. Dot, dot, dot. CBS News national security correspondent David Martin reports the war was supposed to begin with an air campaign, but the battle plan has been turned on its head, and now the ground campaign is coming first. The plan started changing last night when the U.S. thought it saw a chance to kill Saddam Hussein. Dot, dot, dot. No one knows if Saddam is gone or just gone into hiding.
but intelligence officials say if he is alive, he no longer seems to be in iron-fisted control of his regime, which will make it easier for other senior leaders to surrender. In an opening to ground action, U.S. and British Marines entered southern Iraq Thursday and the U.S. 3rd Infantry Division attacked Iraqi troops with howitzers and multiple launch rocket systems, firing more than 100 shells. U.S. and British forces seized the border town of Umm Qasr. U.S. forces entering southern Iraq saw oil wells on fire from the direction of Iraq's petroleum center, Basra. Small numbers of U.S. and British special forces were operating surreptitiously in other parts of the country, and U.S. warplanes stepped up attacks on Iraqi air defenses in the north and south in hopes of making it easier and safer for coalition aircraft when the massive aerial assault begins, officials said. Dot, dot, dot. For a second night, missiles hit Baghdad, where the sky was filled with anti-aircraft fire and loud detonations echoed through the city. The main presidential palace and the Ministry of Planning were struck. Meanwhile, F-14 and F-18 jets took off from the USS Theodore Roosevelt in the eastern Mediterranean, armed with missiles and bombs. Iraqi forces fired back on Thursday aiming missiles at U.S. troops in Kuwait. The Kuwaiti Defense Ministry said six missiles were fired, two of them scuds. If true, that would have political implications. Iraq is not supposed to have scuds, and if it had them, it would strengthen the U.S. case for war to disarm Saddam. There was no evidence chemical weapons were being used, but U.S. soldiers and reporters donned gas masks and headed to bunkers, just in case. At Kuwait's border with Iraq, Pali says helicopters fired several missiles at Iraqi positions. That came after several skirmishes along the border during the day, including artillery and tank fire. Much of the offensive seemed intended to probe Iraqi defenses and take out its observation posts along the border. Most of the strikes were launched with artillery that rolled like thunder for an hour at a time. Big 155mm howitzers and devastating multiple launch rockets that slammed into targets with awesome power. Dot, dot, dot. Emphasis mine. Missile attacks across Iraq and on Baghdad increased on the 21st with use of precision-guided munitions aimed at government and military sites. Much of this captured on live international TV amid ongoing coverage from the broader war zone. This escalation was part of the push to decapitate the Iraqi leadership, not only Saddam Hussein, and beat Iraq into submission through the Shock and awe, inspired by the relentless attacks of U.S.-led forces. The most credible figures now tell us that Iraqi leadership was left unscathed by this aspect of the initial campaign, which featured at least 50 different assassination attempts within the broader bombardment. The same can't be said for the many civilians killed or maimed in these failed assassinations alone.
I'll now read a section from the first half of www.hrw.org slash reports slash 2003 slash USA 1203 slash 4 dot htm hashtag underscore capital T O C 57442242 An assessment from Human Rights Watch on this very topic under the title Flawed Targeting Methodology In attacking leadership targets in Iraq, the United States used an unsound targeting methodology largely reliant on imprecise coordinates obtained from satellite phones. Leadership targeting was consistently based on unreliable intelligence. It is also likely that Iraqi leaders engaged in successful deception techniques. This combination of factors led directly to dozens of civilian casualties. Dot, dot, dot. Later in that article are actual case studies, with specific details such as dates, locations and identities of victims, from the start of the invasion until April 9th, when Baghdad was conquered. This is the phase with which the term shock and awe is generally applied. I may well refer to this document in the next episode. Here's a basic outline of the general attack plan. Special forces guided a Kurdish Peshmerga assault force from the north while most of the western force invaded from Kuwait. Some, however, entered from Saudi Arabia and Jordan both of whom held an official anti-war stance. For this reason, much of their initial acquiescence was downplayed and only came to full light at a later time, given that most people in either country were against a US-led invasion of Iraq, let alone use of their respective countries as a launch pad. Aerial and naval power, meanwhile, was dispersed across Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, the Mediterranean, Red Sea, Persian Gulf, and across the broader region. By March 22, invasion ground forces were deep inside Iraq. A forwards contingent of the 1st Brigade from the 3rd Infantry Division of the U.S. Army, for example, had already made it about halfway to Baghdad from its invasion spring-off point in Kuwait. For a propaganda-laden, retrospective article also laced with a surreal dose of brutal reality, New York Times, originally printed on April 13, 2003, you can go to www.nytimes.com slash 2003-04-13 world slash nation minus war minus field minus third minus infantry minus division minus discovering minus doubt minus death minus drive minus towards dot html it is titled a nation at war in the field 3rd Infantry Division, Discovering Doubt and Death on Drive Towards Baghdad. Let me read you just a snippet. Dot, dot, dot. War has the feel of epic history, even lived from within the confines of one unit. For the soldiers of the 3rd Infantry Division's 1st Brigade, the awareness of being part of something vast, 
was accompanied by the inescapable fact of viewing the conflict through the narrow prism of immediate personal experience. Dot, dot, dot. The next part I shall quote was printed under the subtitle Committed to Liberation. This land has witnessed the march of many armies. The 1st Brigade's Chief of Chaplains, Major Mark B. Nordstrom, told its commanders as they sat beneath a tent awning on April 1, the afternoon before the final push to Baghdad. Each commander's briefing ended this way, with a sort of sermon followed by a prayer. On this day, he cited Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, the Persians, but this land has never seen an army march to liberate its people, he added. It was this that members of the 3rd Division's 1st Brigade believed with a passion from the outset. Theirs was above all a mission of liberation. Dot, dot, dot. Throughout the march north across the desert, the human toll of war was evident. At the border outposts, in the streets of the village of Kifl, along the banks of the Euphrates, in bunkers along canals, and finally at the airport west of Baghdad. The corpses of scores of Iraqis lay in the sun, twisted, starting to rot. Some were in uniform, some were not. Most of the dead were young men, no older than the soldiers who killed them. Many were burned beyond recognition in vehicles destroyed by American air and artillery bombardments. For the soldiers of the 1st Brigade, most of them in their early 20s, it was their first experience of killing, their first encounter with death on such a scale. Some showed revulsion, a sense of unease and concern about what their families at home might think. Others simply gawked, apparently impassive. A few became physically sick. Dot, dot, dot. Listenership, while each to their own, I've told you before that I'm a Christian. The chaplain quoted in the article may have been one, too. After all, some who served in the German army under the pagan Hitler would have also been Christian, while many would have been atheist or agnostic. Horrible, and yet, we all mess up. Not for me to judge. I only hope that such men, so clearly on the wrong side of history, American or German, reflect, repent, and seek the forgiveness they need, which I believe we all, ultimately, need, given how flawed we really are. We'll continue with the invasion next week starting with stats relating to the shock and awe phase of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Remember, question everything. Do your own research. Keep a healthy, open mind. Above all, never forget. You've been given an intellect, so use it. Goodbye.